Gamble is to gamble away from the vaccine and away from potential harm. Now, Jessica Rose, in her first paper, showed that the non-fatal um, reactions tend to be um, cardiac, cardi uh, cardiovascular, neurologic, and immunologic. They tend to occur quickly after the shot. Again, a tight temporal relationship. And with Rose, she's a, a really uh, tight, tight uh, epidemiologist, but virologist. She's made the case that we've completely fulfilled the Bradford Hill criteria for causality. We have a dangerous mechanism of action. We have a tight temporal relationship. We have internal consistency between death and the non-fatal um, events. We have external consistency because this is seen in the MHRA system, the yellow card system, and in the UDRA, UA, the EMA system. We basically got it. We have fulfilled Hill's tenets of causality. The vaccine is causing these events. Welcome to The Last American Vagabond. I am very honored to be bringing on the show today Dr. Peter McCullough and author John Leake to discuss a multitude of discussions today, but what we're going to discuss to start out John Leake and Dr. Peter McCullough's joint book, and th that book is entitled, right out of the gate, we'll discuss The Courage to Face COVID-19, Preventing Hospitalization and Death While Battling the Biopharmaceutical Complex. And those that follow The Last American Vagabond and all of our multifaceted work, you will know this is something that really definitely catches my attention. So we're going to be discussing the many different discussions within this topic, as well as the harm that is being done, as you saw from that opening clip, which I find to be one of the most important about just being able to understand that this is being proven. This is not a hypothetical anymore. We are seeing this shown to be hurting people. And so somebody who has been discussing this for a very long time, as you've known from our previous discussion with Taylor Hudak and Dr. Peter McCullough, both joining me today, Peter McCullough and John Lee, to discuss this topic. How are you both today? Well, thank you. Thank you. It's an honor to have you both. Well, I'd like to discuss to start off today with, like I said, with the book itself and, and just kind of understanding what this book is about. And maybe we can start off with you, John, since this uh, I haven't had a chance to read this since we kind of last minute decided to add John to the interview. So I'd like to you know, kind of discuss this out of the gate and tell us what it's about, you know, what got you both interested in writing this book. And then we'll kind of walk back from there. But again, preventing hospitalization and death, as my audience is well aware, we've been discussing this, as I've been calling the pandemic of the injected on the other side of this for a while now. So start off with the book here for me and let us know what, what uh, was the impetus here. Well, I live in Dallas, Texas. Um, I discovered as I got into this that I, I live about a mile away from Dr. McCullough. And in early, I'd say February of 2020, I'd spent a lot of my adult life living in Europe and have a lot of friends in Italy. And I noticed these reports coming out of Milan about this SARS-CoV-2 on the move in Italy, the Italian state is trying to control the contagion, very frightening, people dying. But one of the things that quickly emerged was, was that it was very risk stratified. It was primarily killing older people, people who'd, who'd reached life expectancy. Um, this is not an uncommon event in Italy. It has the second oldest population in the world after Japan. And I, I noticed that the American reporting on this was very quick to say this is an absolutely terrifying, uh, lethal thing for everybody, including young, healthy athletes. 
So that was my first clue that this is being misrepresented. For some reason, there is a, a beyond just media grabbing eyeballs. This looks like has all of the hallmarks of a propaganda campaign, almost like, you know, a, a military situation where there's a department of propaganda, very unified reporting across the media, sort of flooding of propaganda, which is a well-known technique. I thought, well, what is going on here? So that was kind of the start of my inquiry. I, I get a couple of months into this thing, and I, I realize I need I need to find someone who has real medical authority. I mean, I've studied the history of medicine. I've done some translation work for forensic scientists. I'm, I'm familiar with the literature, but I need someone who, who really understands this stuff, really studied it his whole life. And I saw a, a video of, of Dr. McCullough's Senate testimony in that fall. So I, I contacted him and I said, I'd like to interview you. So that was the beginning of our collaboration. Which is an important interview, by the way. I'll be sure to include that in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so that's that's how it began. And, and what I perceived was was that um, this this foreign army that is upon us, that has invaded us, you have to think about who is out there in the field trying to figure it out. Who, who is trying to figure out ways to to confront the enemy and defeat the enemy. And, and that's what I observed with Dr. McCullough. And I, my sense was he's just doing what's just perfectly natural to him. So I, I have to figure out a way to treat my patients. And so he's doing what his training, his instincts, his, his habits are directing, his conscience are directing him to do. And he starts encountering all of this strange resistance um, suppression, censorship, um, veiled threats, intimidation. You think, well, what on earth is going on here? So I, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of open it up with, with that. Um, we we mm -hmm. walk through how Dr. McCullough starts by trying to courageously face the illness, and then he finds himself having to courageously step into the ring with his own, his own institution and his right. own people. Yeah, which is a really, I mean, that's a, it's been a really incredible process to watch. I always point out people, you know, there were a lot of early on people that, and, and Peter, yourself being one of them that really came out of the gate and just stood their ground and said, no, this is, this is very clear. And at the very least, we should be asking questions. And it was incredible how these people were, were pushed back, fired, suppressed, censored, attacked. So before we go any further, Peterson, I mean, you don't, you need no introduction with my audience, but for those that might might be new to this, give us a brief background for you know your background as well, and then we can start off with a couple points I wanted to add to the the book and and beginning our discussion. So go ahead for me, Peter. Well, it's great to return to the last vagabond. I have to tell you, your viewers have quite a treat. The level of journalism is unparalleled. You know, as introduced, I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm a practicing internist and cardiologist. I'm trained in epidemiology as well. I've, I'm in academic practice in Dallas, Texas. I uh, maintain my board certifications in both cardiology and internal medicine. And, and I, so I've always managed influenza, pneumococcal pneumonias, mycoplasma, and other forms of respiratory illness. I handle asthma. Uh, it's not, uh, it's, you know, it's in my wheelhouse. And when COVID-19 struck, as John implied, I just thought I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. Patients were getting sick and I was providing care for them. Patients in my practice who have heart disease and lung disease, diabetes, obesity, you know, they're at the highest risk. 
And when I testified in the U.S. Senate, I'll never forget, I was on the floor of the U.S. Senate in November of 2020. I told America, I said, I was not going to let the virus slaughter my high-risk patients. I was not going to sit back and let it happen. And what so many people have asked me is, Dr. McCullough, how did the other doctors let that happen? Right. Right. I mean, it's incredible to think about. I mean, I honestly, it's hard to say whether these people are willing to ignore what's in front of them because of many different reasons or whether they just have convinced themselves that blindly trusting the CDC is what they're supposed to do and that that is research. That's something I always often talk about. A lot of people have convinced themselves of that or have been convinced of that by social engineering that just simply trusting what the mainstream or CDC or the FDA say, whether they're lying or just simply incorrect, is now actually doing your research. It's incredible. It's kind of the psychosis discussion. But there's so many different discussions we could get into. I'd like to actually start coming off the book and the, and the, the death and hospitalization conversation. I don't know if you guys have, see, have seen this old this document. This just came up to me as he was discussing in the beginning, where this is the WHO from 2011. This is now deleted from their website. It's on the archive but where it's discussing what's called health is more than influenza. And this was also, uh, there's plenty of other, the BMJ came out with something similar, uh, the HHS even had a comment. They've all been basically scrubbed. The bottom line is what it gets to is this combination of flu, pneumonia at this point. But now today we now see flu pneumonia with COVID-19. And this is an easy way that they lumped in a bunch of death and then adding that to whether that was intentional or just by a broad net to be safe, but obviously that's then being used in a very specific way as if it's all fact, but to the conversation he's having about the, 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 the nursing homes and how it's already been proven that there were a predominant focal point of the deaths, right? So give me your thoughts on how that kind of an illusion is being used and whether you think that's intentional or not. The, the com- specifically, the combination of flu and pneumonia in the numbers of COVID-19 and with flu basically disappearing. I mean, that's one of the earliest things I saw that just screamed that this is not accurate. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up. Uh, In the first year of the pandemic, by invitation, I was a frequent contributor to The Hill, uh, which is a conservative uh, newsletter uh, inside for Washington insiders, by and large. And one of my contributions was titled, when influenza collides with COVID-19, when the two illnesses, in a sense, become intertwined. And, uh, and, and what I was foreshadowing was the, the problem of confusion on diagnosis. And as we've learned, the original CDC PCR assay could not distinguish between influenza and the flu. And the, P, the CDC assay was the basis for the laboratory-derived assays, which was the initial wave of tests that were used in COVID-19. So <clears throat> invariably, what, is, what happened as, as, quote, influenza disappeared is there were patients misdiagnosed. Certainly in America, this happened where uh, someone indeed had influenza, let's say from a nursing home, uh, but, but a, a flu test wasn't done. A COVID test was done because everyone was thinking of COVID. And in fact, it was positive when, in fact, the patient had influenza. That means that patient could have been inappropriately treated with remdesivir, with right. corticosteroids, a whole variety of illness, a whole variety of treatments. Now, others have provided a counter opinion and said, wait a minute, that was in the United States, but in fact, flu was down all over the world last year, which it's, uh, which is true. So there may have been just a, a hyper-focus on COVID and misdiagnosis of influenza across the globe, but clearly in the United States, we had assay problems. I think after, uh, you know, we were six or nine months into it when, when uh, Abbott and Quest and LabCorp and and Roche, all the other big manufacturers came online with their own tests. Uh, we were beyond that problem. Yeah, and and the PCR 
discussion, I don't even think this needs to be pointed at anymore. I, it's it's pretty baffling that we're at a point where even they can kind of quietly admit that there's a high level of false positives. I argue the percentage of that is, you know, up in the air. But it's you know, people like Dr. Scoglio, PhD, argues it's upwards of ninety five percent if over forty cycle threshold. You know, it, it's interesting. You have any thoughts on that, either of you, for the PCR test? Well, well quickly, it depends on context. So the mm -hmm. PCR test is only FDA approved as a diagnostic aid in someone acutely ill with suspected COVID-19, where the false positives come in in these large numbers of asymptomatic populations that are tested for travel and for school and work. And, and since the numbers are so large, even though the positivity rate is low, less than 1%, in fact, as you stated, uh, the vast majority uh, in ranges across studies from anywhere from you know, over 90% to at least 60% are indeed false positive. So the PCR has been part of uh, the story of, in a sense, propagandizing or making the problem seem larger what it is. And I think as John would point out is that many think that that was intentional, it's intentional fear mongering. Well, John, what are your thoughts on that? Because I definitely would agree that to some level, you can see this being a conscious choice, even if you want to frame it as being, and this is what I give them at the very least to be objective, like the argument that we're just being overly cautious, but on the other side of that, that overly cautious and broad numbers being used to put people in jail or, you know, it just doesn't add up to me. So what are your thoughts on that, John? Well, what I find is an interesting starting point for any inquiry is to go back and look at what, what academics and scientists were saying about some of these methods before the pandemic. And what's, right. what's notable is, is how suddenly what, what's being represented about things that have been around for a while radically shifts. So, I mean, Kerry Mullis himself, who invented the PCR test, I mean, I don't know if any of your listeners have seen that famous interview that, that made its way out onto the Internet, but he's saying, you know, in that wonderful North Carolina accent, it can find anything in anybody. It's alone is not is not sufficient to diagnose the presence of an infection. So the man himself who invented the PCR test expressed caution about that. But then he dies in 2019, which is just a remarkable fact. And then suddenly his, his PCR test is, is being represented as something that can, can positively diagnose an illness. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, this is, this is the, the sort of thing that we walk the readers through in a, in a narrative fashion is you, you stumble across all of these inconsistencies as we go along. And, um, we, we've tried to embed this in a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end that people can easily follow. Mm -hmm. Well, that's good. I mean, because th this is a really basic fact that has been even, I mean, I would even argue admitted, but just a, not in the corporate media, right? So people don't really see that reality, and that speaks to the manipulation we talked about in the beginning. But to your point, the PCR test, Kerry Mollis, is, and, and yeah, that we've been playing these things from the beginning, that they would challenge this. And what's even more interesting is that if you remember, there was the fact check, as we all know, what, what the opinion checks, I call them today, came out and said fake news. You know, that's he was talking about something else. But then they've even had to they were forced to come back and admit it quietly at the bottom of that article. No, we've updated this to reflect that he did say this. And so it, they've even admitted that he said this and it wasn't appropriate. I often point to a gentleman that I, I forget his name off the top of my head who had used PCR tests 
for genetic testing for mussels, freshwater mussels and different, I forget the purpose of it, but he came out early and said, look, I use these things regularly and I get false positives all the time. So he was baffled about it. That got shuffled out of the media, of course, because it wasn't an interesting focal point, but nonetheless, I, I, I find your, your comments very interesting. The reality is that it's very, un, we should be questioning this at the very least. I think it's obvious that there's a manipulation going on. That's my opinion. But let's bring this back to, oh, good, good, John. There's one thing I would add to that. I, I sort of feel like when I'm talking with doctors, they've been studying this stuff starting in medical school years ago. And so they're, they're, it seems to me that doctors are, are, are sort of presuming that everyone else understands something that they, it's just part of their professional understanding. But I think the general public doesn't understand the mere presence of an infectious agent does not necessarily mean that the body is responding to it in this way that creates illness. So I remember when I was a little boy, there was talk of staph infection in the football locker room. Mm-hmm. And my and this was terrifying staph infection. And I remember my pediatrician said, you know, if I did a swab of your nose, I would find Staphylococcus bacteria in your nose. So an infection is not the same as the mere presence of the infectious. And I feel like the public doesn't really understand that very well. Maybe that's something Dr. McCullough can talk about. Really quickly, I would add to the point that it's not just they don't understand it, but that they have been misinformed about that. Like that's been a play on the understanding so that they think having some little presence of anything means that they're sick or that that's a case. And that's been misrepresented. Do you have any thoughts on that, Peter? Yeah, you know, I, those are a great conversation. Let me just say clinically what we should have done from the very beginning is we should have followed the CDC guidance, which said we should never exceed a cycle threshold greater than 28. Right. And that, um, in my view, we should have, you know, this is such an important diagnosis. We should have had confirmatory testing, just like we do with HIV. With HIV, we always have two forms of, uh, you know, we basically had the uh, the the um, uh, testing the antibody against HIV. Then we actually used the Western blot originally. Now we use HIV viral load. But we always use confirmatory testing because it's too important. We do that for heart attacks. We do that for so many other illnesses. Here, it's just a quickie PCR at any cycle threshold level. And if it's positive, it influences things greatly. It counts towards cases. People are on lockdown. They can't travel. There's concerns. Uh, people are labeled as having COVID in the hospital, even if they're in for a hip fracture. Uh, right, you can right. see how sloppy uh, this is. And so, uh, you know, we never advanced the diagnostics. We never had discipline in the diagnostics and, and no one seemed to care. I, I, I again, hate to, you know, I, I see this as a choice. I just can't see it any other way because this is a conscious reality. As you said, this is awareness of the necessity of consistency in this situation, right? And so now we find where it's just each state or even even further down from that is choosing their own cycle threshold. We've got no consistency on masks or regulation. I mean, these things don't make sense from any other perspective prior to this. And it just kind of speaks to a willingness to allow it to be so muddled that we have no understanding of it. I mean, I can't see it any other way, but as we continue into this and we get to like the, the vaccine itself and the numbers around this, then you, it's, it becomes even more clear that this is they're hiding reporting from us. They're manipulating the way that it's broken down and it's becoming impossible to see. So I'd like to talk about early treatment because the idea of preventing hospitalization and death is really what we people like yourself and plenty of others have been screaming about from the very beginning, not to say screaming in a negative way. Obviously we're trying to get people's attention, right? And this is important. And this is that a conversation of a lot of different early treatments. I mean, obviously 
ivermectin has been one that I've focused on a lot in yourself and plenty of others because it's almost it's incredible that this is something that is being so aggressively misrepresented. But we could talk about remdesivir or other different things that are hurting people. I'd like to talk about Paxlovid and the failed trial. But uh, Peter or John, wherever you'd like to start, I'd like your thoughts on early treatment and how that's been suppressed. Well, let's let John take this and set the world stage on what was happening worldwide with early treatment at the beginning. Okay. Well, what I noticed um, just straight off the bat was quickly, this seems to be related to this first SARS that came out of China in 03. And so as a true crime author, you know, you have this historic clue. Um, Let's take a look at that. And so I quickly Googled, you know, treatment SARS-CoV-1. And come to find out, there were a bunch of papers published between 2003 and 2015 indicating that there are these various compounds, mostly in vitro studies, but also studies in in baby mice, showing that chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, zinc, um, a, a variety of compounds seem to have some activity against the uh, replication of, of SARS-CoV-1. So this was a good starting point. And there's this wonderful doctor and, and microbiologist in Marseille, France, named Professor Didier Raoul. And he was very attuned to all of this literature. He was familiar with some of these compounds from other uh, um, illnesses that he'd successfully treated, cr- created treatment protocols for that our standard of care all over the world. So I really credit Professor Didier Raoult and, and, and France with the first guy that really pulled all of this together in the Western world. And I, I, as we go through our book, we take the reader through this, this you know, you, you have to think when you're reconstructing a crime story, sometimes the omissions speak as loudly as, as what's included. It's like, why is no one and our federal health bureaucracy talking about these promising treatment modalities. Mm-hmm. There's just no discussion about it. And um, so this, this was kind of a starting point of, okay, this thing isn't completely unassailable. I mean, SARS-CoV-2 seems to have an Achilles heel or some weaknesses. Let's attack it. But there's zero discussion about attacking it, about using right. what is at hand. Um, so that was kind of my, my starting point on early treatment as a, as a researcher. To add a personal story to that, it just it, and this is what I hear from anybody that I talk to in this regard, my father unfortunately chose to get it, the, the injection after, despite my, my discussions with him, and ultimately within a matter of so many weeks, got COVID-19 or so he was told after that. Then when he was told that, at no point was he told to do anything other than go home, maybe take an aspirin and let us know when you get sick. And I'm not even making that up. I mean, it's incredible that we're in a situation where there's no discussion of vitamin D, vitamin C, or any other of the things we're discussing here, just general realities of keeping yourself healthy. Nope, just go home and let us know when you get sick. And then conversations of overwhelming hospitals, if that's, you know, it just, it seems compounding and intentional to a degree, you know? So the the early treatment conversation, it almost seems criminal to me that we're knowingly overlooking the reality of the things that on doc, 
ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine are being shown to have real world effects, antiviral effects, as even a new Japanese study pointed out. It's, it's incredible to me. Um, but unless you have any, I mean, you're, the discussion of the early treatment we've talked about a lot, it's very obvious this thing is, at the very least, has a positive effect and is still being ignored, called horse paste, even to this day, which just baffles me. But what are your guys' thoughts on, for instance, the, what I, as I call the Pfizer-Mectin, the Paxlovid pill, and the fact that it just failed its recent trial, and yet they're still using it instead of Ivermectin? Well, let me just pick up on early treatment and tell you my perspective is that uh, you know, there's no illness that is potentially fatal uh, that I would just toss in the towel for patients to say, listen, just, you know, wait at home until you're just about near the end of life and then go to the hospital. I wouldn't do that for a, a serious staphylococcal infection, streptococcal, a viral infection, whether it be cytomegalovirus or influenza virus. Uh, I just never would do that. And um, th th this, in a sense, false narrative, as John points out, that SARS-CoV-2 was unassailable. It was untreatable. I think the reason why it was so readily accepted by physicians is they were afraid of the virus themselves. And so if doctors were told that they could not treat it, it was unassailable, there was nothing they could do, that means that patient would never come into that doctor's circle of empathy. And one time, one time a doctor told me, Dr. McCullough, you are out of bounds by treating these COVID patients. You don't have enough proof. You don't have enough evidence you can treat them. And I, I said, well, I, I said, I said, what do you do? He goes, well, I tell them there's no treatment. I said, is that what you tell them when you, they call you? They go, yes, I do. And I said, well, do you call them in a couple of days to check on them? And then he said, uh, no, I don't. And I said, that's the problem. This is the problem of there's no empathy. So even if you thought there was no treatment, a doctor would at least care and check up on a patient to, to help them make a triage decision on, on whether they should go to the hospital. But so we basically developed a crisis of compassion. Patients, you know, over a million patients called their doctors, called their nurse practitioners and physician assistants. They were begging for help. They were told they couldn't get any help. And then they crashed in the hospital. The vast majority of the million deaths that occurred, in fact, happened in the hospital. So it's obvious the hospital didn't save them from the Harvard Stop COVID uh, database in the United States. The ICU contemporary mortality is still 30%. That is astonishing. You know, the most dangerous form of heart attack I see as a cardiologist is called an ST segment elevation myocardial infarction. The mortality rate in the hospital is 2%. You know, we don't have illnesses that killed 30% of people in the hospital, yet SARS-CoV-2 became this accepted norm. And to make matters worse, the hospitals picked up no bravado on this. Do you know we're in our third year? There's still yet to be a U.S. News and World Report uh, re ranking on what's the best COVID hospital. You know, all the hospitals want to be great cardiovascular hospital, great cancer hospitals. Do you know in each town, there's no billboard saying which hospital is the best for COVID. The hospitals are not trying to recruit patients with COVID despite handsome reimbursements. It's the most bizarre situation from early treatment to late treatment of any illness in the history of medicine. That's fascinating and, and horrifying. Do you, do you think that it has anything to do in a part, in some degree with the perception that maybe these people are un, unvaccinated and that's why they may have COVID? So that it's like a more of a, because we've seen that to some degree as well. But no, this happened before the vaccines. So don't forget this, this pattern started before the vaccines. Hospitals were not 
trying to recruit patients. They weren't trying to develop their own protocols. I've told many that, you know, places, iconic places like Mayo Clinic, Harvard, Duke, Emory, they don't have their own protocols to treat COVID. They took the base minimal standards from the NIH and they said, listen, that's all we're going to do. We're not going to try to do even a little bit better. Yeah, it just, yeah, do no harm, right? That, that, just, that, that horrifies me to hear that kind of thing. And it's, uh, John, do you have a thought? Well, I was going to, I think it's useful to study, this is where it's useful to study the history of medicine. Um, I mean, what the people who were insistent on there is no treatment, what they did is they, they used this very common metaphor of the snake oil salesman from the American frontier, where people get sick, they have these, these different conditions, and we're, you know, we're back in 1888, and the medicine show comes along and they, they sell you, you know, petroleum out of the rocks of Pennsylvania or something. Of course, it doesn't work. There is a verbal sleight of hand because what was represented to the public is anyone, any doctor who takes repurposed drugs, they're already FDA approved for treating other illnesses, supplements, zinc, Peter, uh, excuse me, Ralph Barrick himself, the, the eminent gain of function researcher in, in North Carolina, he wrote a paper in 2010 on z- the zinc ionophore against SARS-CoV-1. So these are repurposed drugs. They're FDA approved. We know they're well tolerated. But what this propaganda campaign did is it represented the attempt to use these repurposed drugs as a sort of derivative of, of, the, of the frontier medicine show. Hmm. And Dr. McCullough and his colleagues who spoke before the U.S. Senate on November the 19th, 2020, it's a big scene in the book where the, um, the, uh, um, the, the witness of the opposition or the, the minority witness actually wrote an op-ed in the New York Times reviewing the hearing in which he referred to these three doctors and scientists as the snake oil salesmen of the Senate. So this, this, is, this is very crude propaganda. Yeah. And when you see propaganda of, of this crudity and, 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 and aggression, it tells you that the interest is not getting at the truth of the matter. The, the interest is in pursuing an agenda. And that's clear throughout this story. I agree. It becomes even more clear as every step you take into the different facets of it. And as we spoke about before, see these choices being made that maybe one alone by itself could be seen as misunderstanding or, or however. But when you look at the full picture, and I've been saying this from the beginning, when you really stand back and look at the PIC part of it or the PCR test or, you know, everything in a line, it becomes I, I find it impossible to believe these weren't conscious choices at some level. That That's just my opinion. But on, on that note. Why don't we talk about the other part of this, as you discussed, the biopharmaceutical uh, entity here we're discussing, as you put, the biopharmaceutical complex, and talk about where this seems to be going. And then after that, we can get into some of the other specific nuances of whether how the injection seems to be hurting people. But I, I find this really interesting because, as I said before, we got up, we went live. Everybody seems to be aware of the term big pharma, which is funny that before that was even considered a conspiracy theory years ago, you know, the big pharma idea. But now it's just what people understand but this is the step from big pharma into what it's going to be next right and so i wanted your thought john on where your investigations have seen this where this seems to be going because my audience is well aware of the overlap between covid19 or any other 
discussion being used to drive this in because it's being applied in Ukraine and other things as well. But this is all overlapped into the Great Reset, the technocratic kind of future, the panopticon that's being built, and how this is acutely tied to this biosecurity conversation. So what has your investigation showed you in that in that facet? Well, I think it's useful to start with the characters of John D. Rockefeller Sr. and then and then um, uh, uh, William Gates. I mean, I, I think start with these truly titanic characters. I mean, they, they are so far out on the bell curve of energy and, and ability to, to organize and, and the amount of money that both of those guys made. And both of them had these very strong monopolistic tendencies. Bill Gates gets prosecuted by the United States State Department for violating the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1898. Now, the original guy that that act was was passed by Congress to deal with was John D. Rockefeller. So what does Gates do after he has this sort of bad press with with his monopolistic I mean he's explicitly referred to as today you know the modern day John D Rockefeller he starts a foundation that's modeled after the Rockefeller Foundation mm-hmm. which was very very interested in public health and it seems like this sort of monopolistic drive desire to to expand one's influence across all institutional and even national structures, it's interesting how it's public health. Mm-hmm. And I, I think a good starting point is to ask yourself, why health? Because it's life or death. If, if someone says, you know, you're about to get into big trouble and you might land in the hospital or die, suddenly they've got your attention. They've got everybody's attention. And so I, I think when we talk about the biopharmaceutical complex, it's the, it's the whole complex of these international foundations that have co-opted the, the pharmaceutical industry and has gotten deeply involved in the press and newsrooms. Um, and then we, we see a, a, across you know, all of the ministries, um, whether it be Downing Street or, or the White House, um, so it's it's a it's an international complex, and this isn't a conspiracy theory because these guys publish all of this information themselves. Right. Yeah. What's interesting is you point out the what you're discussing is the the uh, Standard Oil, right, in the discussion of of Rockefeller and and as James Corbett's amazing work on this discussion, I recommend people check out. It's called How Why and How and Why Big Oil Conquered the World. That what turned out to be the the action that was being taken to minimize the power actually in real in reality increased their wealth exponentially and gave them more power but now they were more behind the scenes and you could argue that's essentially what was being done today right it's this really interesting conversation i actually uh, have written about this in the past just the true history of deceit within the rise of western medicine about the flexner report the, the Carnegie's, the Rockefellers, and how there was a sort of hijacking of our health system in a very specific, like petrochemical direction a long time ago. And I argue that's kind of what we're seeing again today. They were getting into a discussion, a situation where they're now trying to redirect us in this new direction, this gene genetic editing, mRNA platform kind of direction, whether or not that's actually what's best for us. Now, I, if, you, if you have any thoughts on that, please jump in. But I was also going to go to the parasite stress theory and talk about this as well, because that seems very relevant to where we are right now. I was going to say that through this entire series of developments, everything's in the open. 
there doesn't appear to be any secret memos. Uh, this uh, love affair with population vaccination, uh, you know, this has been in the print uh, through the Gates Foundation uh, and Bill Gates all the way through, including, you know, statements in the UK tabloids about uh, uh, potentially trimming the world's population through mass vaccination. And then in 2017, 2018, you know, mass vaccination of the world against influenza. You know, these ideals, very paternalistic, as if as if Gates or the Gates Foundation knows what's best for the world, that they know what the best population size is, that they know what's best in terms of managing uh, uh, common diseases. There's a vein of paternalism here. I'll tell you, when COVID-19 came in, it became clear. Uh, they knew what's best. This biopharmaceutical complex, not only Gates Foundation, but the uh, the U.S. Uh, NIH, CDC, FDA, uh, Gavi, and the INSEPI, the EcoHealth Alliance, Rockefeller Foundation, Gates Foundation, the Wuhan Lab in China, World Economic Forum. Uh, these are what's termed the global predators by Peter Bregan. And they are, in a sense, they are predators. Uh, many of the stakeholders themselves have in it for them large revenues, that would be the vaccine manufacturers and others. Uh, you know, there's been a windfall of revenue to in vitro diagnostic companies, hasn't been talked about. Uh, so this is all congealing, unfortunately, uh, against uh, the principles of autonomy, of shared decision-making and medical freedom. Exactly, exactly. And this is the, the alarming step that we're taking into, as you discussed, the World Economic Forum, which openly discusses itself as the, the uh, I forget the word they use, but the, the central part point of this public-private partnership around the world. And this is, as as uh, Professor Michelle Chopstovsky framed it as, the budding of the world government building out in front of us right now, as just the guy, the idea of just a temporary concept to fight against some bio threat, right? But it's beginning to be clear, become clear that this is, I mean, th these are global entities unelected by the respective countries handing out mandates that they're following blindly for their populations. I mean, this is really alarming. And that's why I bring up the idea of the parasite stress theory that Derek Rose wrote about. And this is, I was speaking off air with, with John about this before we went live. This is really just a, a, multiple studies, by the way, that come to the conclusion that they don't even need a real threat. They need the illusion, or it could be just the threat itself, whether, whether real or not, of some sort of virus or parasite, which will drive people into authoritarianism. And this, they, this is what the studies themselves found. So I find it very difficult not to think about whether this was something that was being tested, planned, that kind of a thing, you know, call it conspiracy theory if you wish, but the studies are there and we can see this being lived out in front of us, how the international public-private partnership is being built out. I find it very I was interesting. going to interject. I, I can see a very quick application of that theory uh, to the following scenario. Let, let's say that SARS-CoV-2 burns out and COVID-19 burns out and we just don't have many more cases to face in the next year or so. What we can expect, I think, uh, is a giant initiative for mass vaccination to prevent its return. And we're going to hear all kinds of analogies. Remember polio, smallpox, uh, now that we've conquered COVID-19, we have to prevent it from coming back. So everyone must uh, get in line for their every six-month injections for to prevent the return of it. So again, it doesn't have to be there. It's just the threat of it is enough to get this mass compliance on these uh, very concerning vaccinations. One, one of the things that we talk about in the book, I, I address this, this uh, sort of 
um, general term of, of um, dismissal, conspiracy theory. None of, none of what we examine is in the theoretical realm. It's, it's, all, it's all out in the open. It's, it's plainly apparent. And this, this idea that ambitious guys um, you know, would, should get together and, and have a meeting and talk about how they can um, rule the world, I mean, that's not a theory. I mean, anyone who's even right. vaguely familiar with history sees that this is the, the historic of the human race. Alexander the Great wanted to rule the world. The Roman Emperor Trajan wanted to rule the world. Um, Napoleon wanted to dominate all of Europe. Hitler wanted to dominate all of all, all of Europe. So we, we, we think of this as I, I think that the misconception is, is that this desire for domination only comes in the form of, of a military commander. Mm. But the, mil- the, the military, I, I think, is, is now not a significant institution compared to technology, all of this um, health technology, these, these huge institutions that go way span across Europe and all the way to Australia to, to Singapore, um, the, the military doesn't hold a candle to this. You don't you don't need to show up with, you know, armed to the teeth. You just show up with a computer and a bunch of money. Um, so I, I, I don't I think that the conspiracy theory is, is just a way of changing the subject. Right. Um, directing people's attention from just looking at what's out in the open. I wholeheartedly agree with that. It's an interesting sentiment <clears throat> that I, I, I've been in a similar, different, sort of different way, but saying something similar that I think the idea of kinetic warfare is sort of a thing of the past. I mean, it still happens. It's happening right now, but it's not the primary vehicle by which these different, I mean, we could even get into the idea of regime change or like real world changing situations. I agree. I think that's, it, we're, we're, we're stepping into a new era here where we're seeing, as you said, computer screen and money, and maybe like we discussed, just the threat of something coming. What Peter's talking about is medical pre-crime, essentially, like telling you that you're going to get sick or we might have an outbreak. So here's what we need to do. And then think about the reality of that then becoming, oh, well, it didn't happen because we took that action. You know, this is the whole right. idea. Right? It's like, okay, right. well, when do we ever realize what's actually happening? Right. So, well, well and then, and then this, this, this theory that you're talking about, I mean, you know, it re- it's really useful for this country to, to go back and review the speeches and the writings of James Madison, the author of our Constitution. I mean, he wrote and talked about all of this. I mean, Madison was was concerned about an organized military interest establishing itself in the United States. He thought, you know, if if we have a standing army and a standing navy, these guys are going to form alliances with Congress, with the president, and they're going to be out in the world looking to get involved in conflicts and alliances. Madison expressly talks about this. So whenever there's problems at home, some sort of civil unrest, um, the citizenry is unhappy because the economy is doing poorly or taxes or whatever it may be. He talks about how the Romans, whenever there was a revolt apprehended at home, suddenly there would be a war on the frontier. And, and, I, I, and, I, and I think that this is what SARS-CoV-2 is like this foreign invasion and we, we the citizenry needs to be hyper vigilant at all moments and, and surrendering its our individual autonomy to the state 
which is representing itself as protecting us. So it's 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 like this this um, constant. You need to surrender your autonomy to us so that we can protect you. Right. That's a great point. I mean, I, I can't miss you can't miss the parallel to what they're saying about whatever your perspectives on it in regard to what's going on in Ukraine. Right. Just, you know, just trust us. This is where everything seems to be driving right now is that it's just let them do what they think is best. And when we hope that's what they actually are doing, because we are protecting you. And that might not even be what's happening. Like, it's this really interesting dynamic. And I think this is what brings me to the idea of what you were kind of circling around there at different points, the idea of this pandemic treaty, this WHO, World Economic Forum outline, which I think is really the kind of putting on paper what they've already been discussing behind the scenes is just this agreement from an international level that they not only have the ability to do what they've done before, which is this is what's happening, this is what people should do, but now they actually, as they've been asking for, have teeth to the treaty to where they can make people do it and have enforcement arms for it. So before we, and then after this, we'll get into some more specifics, but what are your thoughts on that? And, you know, and give me any abstract thoughts you may have, guys, about where you think this is going from there, the the technocratic kind of push that we're seeing. Because this, again, the same point we're making, this is not hypothetical. They're openly saying this is what they want. So is that 50 years from now? Is that tomorrow? You know, what are your thoughts on this? Kind of a lot of questions there. So (laughs) feel free to jump in. I've been following this closely and watch for the sleight of hand on even the use of the word treaty, which would require uh, a a confirmation from the Senate or Congress or both. Uh, There may be forms of agreements or other things that can be done in a much more autocratic fashion, Uh, but the principles here are at the international um, court level legally binding. So in agreements that are legally binding. Uh, The second principle is to look for funding Uh, that all these documents so far are assuring funding to the World Health Organization, but without checks on conflicts of interest, including the Gates Foundation or certain countries that may want to have a greater influence than others. And then the other thing to look at very quickly uh, and and understand is uh, a laser focus on information. Uh, One of the things that any of these agreements wants to do is they want to control information medical information. That would mean control of data, reporting on control of data, potentially controlling scientific discourse or or geopolitical or sociological discourse like we're having right now, uh, that this could be subject to international law. Can you imagine that? Um, uh, the, the, the slipperiness of the slope of the World Health Organization treaty or initiative, however it's termed, it can't be any more steep. I agree. Any, any thoughts on it, John? Well, one of the things that I was really interested in when I started researching this and, and looking for a doctor like Dr. McCullough is what is the distinction between a, a medical guy who actually sees patients? I mean, listen, it takes the stethoscope, listens to the lungs, sort of looks in their eyes. If you have clinical experience, this is my understanding of it then you're going to see things that a guy hanging out at the NIH in Bethesda, Maryland, who's not seeing, isn't seeing. And so like my brother was a commercial airline pilot. I mean, the, there you have to make judgment calls when things, you don't radio the FAA. How do I fly this plane? You know, what's the power setting? It, no, like fly, your hands are on it. So this, this, this um, 
this fundamental misconception that a doctor is a guy who is governed by some sort of universal, perfectly delineated set of rules. And what the irony in this is none of these guys in Washington were even seeing any patients. I mean, so Dr. McCullough could talk about that. Yeah, that, I mean, it's, it's incredible to see. And we were taking, speaking of autonomy, like medical. I mean, historically, doctors have always been in a position. I mean, the, the classic example is something like aspirin being prescribed for things off label. It's a small example. But, you know, y- y- the doctor is the one in front of it as you're at the patient, like you're discussing, and is making choices about what's going to help that person, not, you know, coming from a larger top down kind of in, in uh, the larger government kind of mentality that's about what is it's not what's best for the individual. And we've seen this with conversations around vitamin D or other things throughout COVID or even before this, where it's pretty clear that there are benefits that they just don't want to be acknowledged or whatever the reasoning is behind it. You know, I, I think that it's always been a sacred relationship between the doctor and the patient and what, what goes on there in regard to what they're discussing is, is shouldn't matter to anybody outside of that circle. That's my opinion. But I think it's frustrating that that's where this is going. It takes away your choice to be your, the doctor. You're just you're just a position now being told what to do. It's not the same thing, right? Well, you know, the, role of, the role of clinical judgment is enormous. And I, I have to tell you, for all these COVID patients and now the vaccine injury patients, there's a background. I mean, people with backgrounds of heart disease, cancer, blood disorders, other medications. Uh, there is no way on earth that a guideline can possibly replace clinical judgment. The, the calculus is too complex for each person. That's a great point that that's just not being discussed. That there's, And this is where you come into the point of, uh, I mean, we, we go so deep on that, the discussion of like pregnancy or immunocompromised individuals with the injection right. to where they're saying we have no data yet they're being prescribed, you know, pushed really. Anyway, it's it's baffling. But well, and one of the things that, that I learned in, in, in my, my conversations with Dr. McCullough as we were researching this story was that, and, and again, I, I feel like doctors walk around presuming that everyone already understands this. So they're you know, they're not necessarily aware that there are some elementary things that the lay public doesn't understand. So one of the things that Dr. McCullough told me is, well, the nephrologist at the hospital noticed that uh, the, um, the lines on the dialysis machine were clotting. So blood clots. What do you do with blood clots? You treat them. You, 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 if someone's having blood clots, you give them extra strength aspirin or Lovenox or whatever. You treat the blood clots. You don't say... Oh, let's call the NIH. I mean, no, we, well, Dr. McCullough, you can speak to that. I mean, you're addressing what you've seen in your clinical practice. Well, for the first time, people viewed guidelines as a a perimeter, uh, as, uh, in a sense, a set of boundaries of what could be maximally done. And we've never done that. Guidelines can be a base minimal standard. So if the NIH says someone with COVID comes in and, you know, apply oxygen, we'll apply oxygen. But the NIH guidelines in no way, you know, created the the boundaries that we have to live in. Uh, So, you know, it was discovered early, a large study by Henry Ford, early hydroxychloroquine in the hospital had a benefit. We've, uh, you know, now have 300 studies, uh, uh, many dozens randomized trials, and the benefit of hydroxychloroquine is modest, but it's real. Ivermectin, the benefit is greater, uh, and there are now you know, over 70 studies, 
over 35 randomized trials. Each one stopped early, so we don't ask any study to be conclusive. All we look for is a signal of benefit and acceptable safety. We now have uh, the Pfizer Paxiloid drug. Uh, we've had monoclonal antibodies. The point I've made is whether the drugs are generic repurposed or whether or not they're provided through Operation Warp Speed, they have been undermined. All of them have been undermined, I think, for the purpose of creating fear, suffering, hospitalization, and death in order to promote mass vaccination. Right. So this is very important. You know, the monoclonal antibodies came out before the vaccines. They've been consistently safe and effective. They have been modified to basically address the strains of the virus. The vaccines have never been modified to address these strains. So the monoclonal antibodies versus the vaccines are an interesting case comparison. Immediately, the monoclonal antibodies, uh, uh, it was restricted that we couldn't use them in the hospital, which they clearly could benefit. They were sequentially taken off the market. There was great confusion on where they are, how, how we could find them. The monoclonal antibodies from day one were undermined, yet they're the products of Operation Warp Speed. They're expensive. Uh, they, they are high tech. I'm telling you, from the very beginning, it was all about people getting the vaccine, not about treatment. Which, which is, by the way, exactly what that document from the WHO back in 2011 said, the same thing BMJ said and HHS in regard to what, but the ultimate point of why they were combining pneumonia with flu when at the end of the year they only ever proved 18 flu cases and thousands of them were provably pneumonia and they just all called it flu was because there was a, a recent convention around flu in, in injections and the conversation was openly had. How do we sell more flu? And the argument was we need to get people, you know, basically scare them into thinking this is a problem. And that's the next step is when they combine the two. So you can realize whether they thought that was in their best interest or not, it's still a deception, right? That's where we are right now. And it, this this is very clear about the throughout the entire process. And as I was saying before, it should come down to the doctor and the patient. And if the doctor believes this is in their best interest, it's of nobody else's concern. And that's and it just that's the, the sacred relationship. Now, I, I, before we run out of time, I would like to get into some specifics. And since you brought it up in regard to the wrong antibodies, that's that or the, the wrong injection or the wrong being focused on the wrong variant. Let's put it that way. This is something that I think is really obvious and has been discussed before COVID by people like Anthony Fauci or multiple of the doctors. Dr. Ryan Cole pointed this out during this is during COVID, but that right now we're in a situation if, you know, what if the, what we're being told is correct, that there's multiple variants away from this original strain, the isolate that we talk about in the beginning. And by definition, that means that this thing is producing something that's not at least tailored properly to what they're actually dealing with. So as far as I can tell, that leads directly to things like antibody-dependent enhancement or the different problems where your body ends up hurting your itself. So why is that not an issue? And I mean, I think it explains it, it belies the point as they're now making something for Universal or Omicron. But what are your thoughts on why that's happening and why it's being hidden from people? Well, I think you've done a nice job. There are things that should be very, very self-apparent now. Uh, the first is that the virus has mutated and the vaccines have not been changed. I think everyone would agree with that. I think the second point is everyone would agree the vaccines don't last a year, mm -hmm. uh, that everyone is advising now every six-month injections. And I think the third thing uh, that, that should be very uh, self-evident is the vaccines don't stop transmission of the virus. All, all the authorities, our CDC and others, have said, listen, whether or not you take the vaccine, people can get the virus and spread it to others. I think those principles, uh, those fundamental principles would we lead one to conclude 
that the vaccines could only be a matter of personal choice. And if someone really wanted to take injections every six months, they could do that for whatever perceived benefit. But under no circumstances could products like that actually be mandated on a population or start to influence population uh, uh, behaviors or restricting trade or personal life. You know, people's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness now is actually linked to the products and these flaws that I just mentioned. Right. Well, John, in your investigations around the concept of death and hospitalization and you know the, the absence of the preventative discussion there, have you seen any indication that there is you know, that it's not just, you know, whatever we're saying is happening in the world, but that these injections are leading to that problem and that's being misrepresented or any other thoughts on the, the death and misrepresentation there? Well, the thing that I noticed about the vaccines is my understanding of vaccines and the literature on vaccines going back to Louis Pasteur or, or, or Jenner is that a, a vaccine is something that prevents you from getting the illness. It, it, it confers immunity. Mm. And so what I can say is, you know, I, it's like when I take a shower, I like my water wet, you know, I mean, I, I it's like, if I'm going to get a vaccine, I, I want it to prevent infection. And the, the first thing I noticed was they had to change midstream their story. There was this, whoa, um, you know, Houston, we, you know, we have a problem. This, this thing isn't actually preventing transmission. So it was like kind of a magic trick. You know, you pull the rabbit out. Well, it, it doesn't prevent you from getting infected with, with the virus, but it will prevent you from getting really sick with it, which, which is to me such a, a, a remarkable proposition. Well, you know, how do you know? Um, exactly. So, That's the point I was making earlier is this kind of like self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, you didn't get sick because you had it. It's like, just trust them. You know. Well, and, and this is this is the point. So Dr. McCullough, the, the reason I teamed up with him is because he understands all this technical stuff. But what I will say from just a common sense investigative standpoint, um, the other thing that we're seeing is this this Orwellian moment of. In 1984, there's something like um, the, the party's final and most important principle is to tell you to reject the evidence of your own eyes and ears. It was their last and most important command. So I think it's remarkable how representations on television are causing people to reject the evidence of their own eyes and ears. I mean, I'm home over Christmas. Everybody comes home for Christmas. The whole family is there in my mother's house. The first person to get sick with COVID is the only person in the whole house who's vaccinated. Of course. The only person who really got sick with it, who was laid up for three days, was my sister-in-law. So you say, well, that's anecdotal. But I mean, at a certain point, human societies have to function at the level of, you know, what are you seeing? It can't only be what's being represented to you on the evening news. And so this is an area that we're going to get into with our second book in which we address the vaccine. Our, our first book is really about Dr. McCullough and his colleagues scrambling to, to fight this foreign invader. And well, then. And then, and then the, the, the resistance that they encounter in this endeavor. 
Right. Well, we'll most definitely have to connect again after that comes out. I'm looking forward to it. I'll have to catch up on the first one. But yeah, that, that's kind of where this ends up getting into. And we can finish off with the conversation that I've really been discussing. And this is actually funny enough where Whitney Webb has coined the term, as you were referencing before, that, you know, your body is the new battlefield. And th- this is where I see this all going, right, is it's now being redirected, the biosecurity state. It's now fighting the battle inside of us, as Peter was kind of talking about. But so the pandemic of the injected, as I've been calling it, because it's I mean, this is backed up by the data, the real world, not even just majorities, as I understand their argument that, well, it's overrepresented, more people are vaccinated and so on. But then we're also seeing the per, the risk per 100,000 in UK, for instance, the risk per 100,000 in most age categories. I guess this is before they stopped started hiding that data from everybody under the claim that we didn't understand it was higher almost by times four in every age category of getting the getting sick. Right. And, and these kind of different conversations. And I've seen this in Canada, the different places within British Columbia, Ontario, as well as Scotland within the UK and, and plenty of other places. So <clears throat> I think this is the obvious point where we're seeing them try to shift in different directions. And we're seeing the actual repercussions of this. The things that Peter talked about, the blood clots, you know, th- the, the vaccine induced thrombosis, thrombocytopenia and all these different conversations where it is now just being called other things. Or you know, there's a lot of hypotheticals here, but I kind of wanted your perspectives on. I mean, I think we've all agreed that the injection is harming people. But to what degree do you think that is what we're seeing there or the meeting is represented and so on? Go ahead, Peter. Yeah, I think you framed some very important things. You know, Whitney Webb, terrific investigative reporter. This idea that your body is the new battleground, you know, the most common battle that people face is a situation where uh, they take a vaccine that they know could be dangerous or could be fatal or they lose their job or they lose their uh, career, or they lose their ability to go to school and train to, you know, be, you know, the profession they want to go into. So in a sense, it's been brought home in upfront and impersonal, and and people are seeing this real time now. This is an agonizing decision. You know, the average person on the street knows vaccines uh, have big problems with them. And scientist Marc Giardot from France has uh, published in his Substack. Uh, a theory. It's called the Russian roulette theory of COVID-19 vaccination. It really depends on the circulation of the lipid nanoparticles, which organ by chance is going to get super loaded with uh, genetic information that codes for the spike protein, get the get the big time damage of the spike protein in the heart or the bone marrow or the brain. You know, which Russian roulette game are you going to play with each injection? Now, if you play the game and the bullet doesn't come up in the cylinder, uh, you're okay. You take the vaccine and, and you live for another six months and then you, you play the game again. And uh, this is an absolutely agonizing uh, sociological phenomenon that's going on right now. The average patient who talks to me is not worried about getting COVID. They know it's mild and they can get treated. They are scared to death of facing another round of Russian roulette. Right. I mean, I, I would actually go a step further and argue that it's Russian roulette with five bullets instead of, you know, well, one missing instead of only one in the gun. Because what I see, and maybe this can be the final question, unless you have more thoughts on the pandemic of the injected discussion, John, <clears throat> is ultimately, I mean, which one is going to hurt you? Is it going to be the lipid nanoparticles? Is it going to be the mRNA itself? Is it going to be the spike protein? I mean, even discussions of just nanoparticles of any kind being used in the body. There's plenty of studies that show that in and of itself can have problems for reproductivity and it goes on and on. So I, it's just really which one. And I guess my final question would be in either of your perspectives, what do you see to be the most problematic part of this? What part is it that you think is causing the most damage in people's bodies? 
Yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that quickly and just say if I was to hedge my bets, I'm going to say it's cumulative. I'd say the person who gets out of this without a scratch is going to be the person who never got COVID and never took a vaccine. And that fraction of the population is going to be small, but those people will come out unscathed. And then we start going from there, probably mild respiratory infection, uh, get over it, uh, you know, in good shape, more severe, long COVID. How about the infection? Then you take one or two shots or a booster, and then you start adding more and more. It's probably the cumulative exposure of spike protein. It's going to be the, the calculus for who's going to end up diseased or have a, a shortened lifespan. There will be victims along the way. There are people who have explosive cases of myocarditis and they die. That's now published and well accepted. There'll be explosive cases of blood clots. But my hunch is it's going to be cumulative. This spike protein is not rapidly cleared from the body in any application, and it appears to be a killer. Hmm. I, I think what I, what I would add to that is, that to me, there are two conceptual problems with the vaccine. First of all, the public has been conditioned to believe that these, these new vaccine technologies are, are part of the same tradition of, of, of vaccines going back to our childhood schedule for diphtheria or, or for tetanus. You know, I, I was in Indonesia shortly after the tsunami of 2004, and I was shocked by how many people had not gotten a tetanus shot. So there was, when the city of Banda Aceh was struck with this tsunami, a lot of people drowned in blunt force trauma, but then those who survived, if they were cut, in this dirty water, a lot of them died of tetanus, which is a real bad way to go. So tetanus is a great vaccine. We've been, the, the, the public has been conditioned to believe that this, this new vaccine technology that, that was, it was an innovation, it's a genetic uh, mechanism for inducing the body to produce spike protein, which in turn induces the body in theory, to produce antibodies. This is a completely new innovation. And any time science, I mean, there are so many examples of this in history, any time new innovative things were done in great haste without stepping back and, you know, looking, waiting, watching, it almost always has negative unintended consequences. I mean, I thought it was, I'm sorry, I could go on forever. You know, Joni Mitchell objected to Dr. McCullough's interview on the Joe Rogan podcast. And when I saw that, the first thing I thought about was her song, Big Yellow Taxi, in which she says, hey, hey, farmer, put away your DDT. Leave the spots on my apples. Um, You know, give me the birds and the bees. DDT was perceived to be this great new thing that would eradicate the Anopheles mosquito and usher in this era of human health. But it had unintended consequences. And I I don't see this discussion being held at all with the messenger RNA vaccines. Yeah, or just simply the possibility. I mean, you could argue that there's more malicious action being taken, which I tend to believe, but you could just simply argue they could be mistaken. They could have made mistakes. And history shows that's a very valid concern. So as Peter said before, if there's even the slight chance of risk, there absolutely must be choice, period. And we all know that. And so we're at a point now where we're just being 
you know, just they're just running roughshod right back over the conversation. Nope, you're a crazy conspiracy theorist. You can't speak. Now we're going to censor you because you're it, you're offering a very objective perspective and saying, shouldn't we ask whether they're, you know, it's it's actually quite incredible. But I think this is where we see whether by complicity or by just malfeasance that people are being hurt. And that's just undeniable. Ignoring the Vayers data. I mean, there's a thousand ways we could go on this. But I think my biggest concern is where this seems to be driving. Great reset, the discussion that it all goes into, the biosecurity state, but also this universal vaccine that is being built under the guise that we need something to address all the different variants, but still while pushing the one that's for the thing that's not currently in circulation. Like that in and of itself seems criminal. They know they need something, at least in their own narrative, but then they're still pushing the one that apparently doesn't work. So final thought out, out the door here, guys, the, the, the universal vaccine. What do you think about that? Where does that end up going? Is that just the whole, imp- is that, is this whole thing here, the impetus for, for that? I mean, wh- where do you see this going? The MRA platform and universal vaccine discussion. You know, Moderna announced 15 new messenger RNA vaccines. Uh, I'm very disturbed by a repul- report from Holtgen and colleagues from Stanford showing that messenger RNA from Pfizer stuck in lymph nodes for at least two months. It may be much longer than this. This RNA is not disposed in the body like a tetanus toxoid would be or like another, uh, you know, uh, inactivated viral vaccine. This is very disturbing to have long dwelling foreign genetic material in the body. I think it is a giant opportunity for biologic and genetic misadventure. Mm. Sadly, I would agree. Any thoughts on that, John, before we wrap up today? Well, I think it's fun to look at the history of Moderna. I mean, that that, that is a thriller novel unto itself. Um, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the history of that, but um, Stefan Boncel, who's the CEO, he, he got signed on to, to this little Cambridge, Massachusetts biotech in 2011. He had one employee there. He came out of a French company called BioMariu, which built the Wuhan Level 4 Biosecurity Lab. I mean, all of these guys hang out with each other. I mean, you, you don't, they're all part of the same clique of guys who are interested in gain of function research on new pathogens, um, messenger RNA technology for an entirely new generation of vaccines. They're all, Alain Mariu, Stéphane Boncel, the guys at MIT and the guys at Harvard, Klaus Schwab, they're all hanging out to eat with each other all the time. I mean, you can you can find so it's all out in the open. And and it's it's something that anybody with just basic principles of who are these people, what do they want, what are their interests, what are the benefits, it's right there. And I, I would add to the point you're making before about the conspiracy theory term is just that people get together and it doesn't even have to be ruling the world. Just get together and discuss how they can take action, usually at somebody else's detriment to benefit themselves. That's just the way the world operates. It doesn't always have to be a detriment, but that they're collecting behind the scenes to discuss how they can better their situation. This is just the reality of the world. And if we recognize that they're in these same groups, we have to at least ask the question whether these actions were coordinated to some degree. I mean, this is just basic common sense, right? And so I think what, what we've discussed today and the information, you have, go ahead, John, you have a thought? Well, I mean, this is just, this is just human beings. I mean, right. like there's this strange, we've gotten into this strange perception of human affairs where guys don't get together and say, how do we make a lot of money? You know, 
<laughs> You've got the brains. I've got the looks. Let's make lots of money. I mean, that's just kind of the way humanity has always worked. And, right. um, you know, we're now seeing that it's it's at this level of academic medical authority. It's science. It's 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 complex. So there's this availing oneself of, of, of authority. And so th- I knew that I had to find a guy like Dr. McCullough to, 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 to work on this with because he actually does possess authority in this field. I think of Dr. McCullough as like an apostate cardinal. It's like he was part of the College of Cardinals. He didn't like the way, the direction it was going, so he left. But he understands the internal mechanisms of all of this stuff. And we need guys like that, or else we'll, we'll, we'll just be shot down as not having sufficient standing and authority to talk about it. So yeah. he's really... When I went to his speech in Washington on January the 24th and he stood in front of the Lincoln Memorial, I thought, well, for the first time in history, we have to have a medical doctor (coughs) advocating the principles of the Constitution. I mean, only he's in a position to really do that. Yeah, it's interesting that that those two those two things are connecting. And at final point, I think it's interesting the analogy used there because it is in a way what we are seeing this sort of scientism direction where it's it's not really about the facts anymore. It's more of about you know a religion in its own in its own right to just blindly trust the people in those positions. And that Dr. McCullough is realizing that there's a problem there and stepping away from it. it you know that's what you're discussing. And I again you know respect to both of you for the work you're doing and and fighting back against it because it's not easy. So the Aztec priesthood, they understood mathematics and astronomy, but that and it was a secret. You you could not you could not receive training in mathematics and astronomy unless you were a member of the priesthood. And they used this to control the entire empire. If if you don't if you don't do what we say, these rituals give us these you know th- these girls for our rights and our rituals and property and all of this, you know the the moon will turn red, you know, well, they know it's going to turn red because they have it. it, There is a tendency throughout human affairs to, to concentrate authority, Mm -hmm. knowledge. And if you possess this knowledge, then you're in a position to, to rule, to command. Yeah. Great point. And that's what we're seeing today is that we're abusing the general lack of understanding of certain things of the average population, you know, and that's again, why your work is so important and you know we need to continue this fight because people depend on this kind of work to see through the wall of lies that seem to be built around us today from every possible angle so thank you so much both of you for being here today and taking the time i think it was a great conversation i'd like to do it again actually when the new book comes out so please let me know okay thanks thanks any any, uh, final thoughts for anybody out there you guys want to give your social media links or any new upcoming events coming out well, you certainly can uh, get the, the brand new book about uh, about the courage to face COVID-19 and, uh, you know, our attempts to, to save lives and fight the biopharmaceutical complex. That's recently released on Amazon. Uh, we have a, a website, Courage to Face COVID-19. Uh, you can separately follow me on my Twitter link, uh, P underscore McCullough MD. I also publish the McCullough Report on America Out Loud Talk Radio. And I'll include all these in the show notes, of course. John, any any uh, social media links or anything to drop us before we leave today? I, I would just emphasize, um, check out our website. It's it's simple, but it gives an overview of the book and a link to purchase it on Amazon, CourageToFaceCovid.com. Perfect. Fantastic. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure our audience will love it, guys. And 
Thank you for being here. And as always, everybody out there, question everything. Come to your own conclusions. Stay vigilant. Thank you.